Before our uh, grandson Titus was born here uh, a short month ago, I was talking to Raul at some point about the arrival of his son, and I called him Titus. And Raul looked at me really shocked. He said, how did you know his name? And I said, well, your daughter told me. <laughs> Apparently it was supposed to be a secret to everybody except those in the family. There's no secret uh, to what God determined would be the name of the one born in the manger uh, at that first Christmas. God made it very clear to Mary what he should be called. But unlike us, the one born in the manger had many names. And we want to look at several of those names this morning and try to understand what God was teaching us about who he was and is through his names. And the first one of those names is in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Drop down to verse 14, please. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, please. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The word, the first name, and perhaps what we might call the most ancient name for the Son of God, the word. Um, this was his name before time began. I don't know if your concept of God includes the fact that he stands outside of time. But it needs to, because he does stand outside of time. He created time. And the only way he could create time would be to stand outside of it. The, the, the lifeline on God has an arrow on both ends. Always existed, always will. And here, this first name ascribed to the Son of God is the Word. The Greek word that's translated into our English Bible word is the word logos, from, from which we get our word logic. And it refers to communication, but it's not about words like your lips moving. It's about the content and the thought of those words. Jesus is the well-thought-out communication of God to us. That's what these verses from Hebrews tell us. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. The fathers is a reference there to the, the heads of the tribes of Israel. Throughout the time of, of, of what we call the Old Testament, God spoke in various times, various ways, by the prophets. Those were men who who heard God's word or saw it in a vision and then spoke it from there. Now he has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is God's communication to us. He has communicated with mankind 
Ah, we might say whenever mankind needed more communication. And that started with Adam and Eve. He talked to Adam and Eve. He gave them instructions, not just the command not to eat from the tree, but he gave them positive instructions. Be fruitful, fill the earth and multiply it. Keep the garden. God talked to Adam and Eve. God talked to Cain. God warned him not to sin. God talked to Noah. He said, Noah, there's a flood coming. Here's what I want you to do. God talked to Abram, who became Abraham. He talked with him many times. He talked to Moses. The scripture says, as a man talks to his friend. I guess we would understand that to mean conversationally. He spoke to and through judges and kings and prophets. And finally, the scripture says, the ultimate communication is Jesus Christ himself. Those of us who have grown up with God's word sometimes might be inclined to take it for granted. But I think King David tells us the attitude we ought to have about God's communication. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider, when I think about your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? I don't know how you think about God. I, 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 I can tell how a lot of people in the world think about God. They think he is uh, perhaps a genie in the bottle who ought to do whatever it is they want. Sometimes we tend to be thinking of God too much, dare I say, on this level and not enough on this level. What is man that you are mindful of him? Isn't that a, 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 we understand that God exists in spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. And yet God uses parts of the physical body to help us understand him. And, and by God's inspiration, the, the psalmist here says, when I look at the work of your fingers, what's he trying to say there? He, he, he's trying to say, he, he's trying to say the, the heavens, the moon and the stars only took the fingers of God. <laughs> Um, I can't do much with my fingers anymore. I've got to get my whole arm involved. And even then, it's kind of puny. He didn't say, oh, God, you've put your whole body into this. He said, you just, you just took your finger and made the moon. And David meditated on the power and the incredible strength of God. And he said, why do you take note of us? Isn't that the opposite of how many people seem to think? They look up to heaven and say, why aren't you paying more attention to me? And God looks down from heaven and he says, I've given you the ultimate communication already. It's my son, Jesus Christ. Look at him. Listen to him. Take note of him. Christmas is about God talking to us through the life of his son, Jesus Christ, who is called the Word. That also helps us to understand what this name means. Um, we read from, from uh, Hebrews 11 that 
Jesus is the express image of God. In other words, he communicates to us everything that God is. The, the name Emmanuel means God with us. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. He is God's communication, and God communicates by sending himself, if you will. Jesus didn't just speak God's words. He demonstrated God's character. Jesus put it this way in talking to some folks when he was on the earth. If you had known me, you would have known the Father, God the Father. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. He's, he's talking to the apostles here. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And that's all we need. Jesus said, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Now some people have mistakenly listened to this passage and said, well, what that passage means is in the Old Testament time, God expressed himself as the Father, and in the, in the time of Christ, he expressed himself as, as the person of Christ, and now he expresses himself as the Holy Spirit. That's an old heresy called modalism, and that is not what God was saying. It's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was, in this passage, communicating the commonality that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He said, everything that I do shows you who God is. Now, we understand that God created the world by the breath of his mouth. We understand that God exists in the spirit. And so certainly there are aspects of God's existence that are not clearly demonstrated by the person of Christ, but the character. The character of God is absolutely demonstrated to us and the power of God is demonstrated to us by the person of Christ. He was God with us. Which also leads us then to, to understand um, the value, if you will, and the importance of this gift that God gave us in his son. He's called the only begotten son, and he's called that more than one place, but this one is an interesting place. 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Earlier in the text we read, it said he shall be called, or he, the, he's the only begotten son. I read a, an author this week who said, this is God giving the gift with the price tag left on. In other words, God said, listen, folks, I'm going to give you my son, and he is my only one. My only one. This tells us something about the love of God for us. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. The fact that God would send his only begotten shows us how much he loves us. 
God loved Adam and Eve. He warned them that there would be a punishment for their sin, but he was gracious to them and provided a salvation. This payment for sin and God's love for us comes into sharp focus on the cross when when we read these words. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't know why they kept this phrase in the Aramaic language and why they translated it that way, but that's, that's what they've done. They've, they've shown the, the, the native tongue that Jesus spoke, which was Aramaic, and then the Greek translation after it. It was so, it was so full of emotion, uh, pathos, and and, and they heard him say these words, and, and it just struck people, and, and they remembered the, the actual words that he said, and they put the translation as well. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, y- y- you have to think just a little bit about the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How, clo- how close were they? How close was their relationship? It it was close beyond what we can possibly imagine. Uh, You know, I I have close family relationships, my wife, my daughter, son-in-law, my grandkids. You have relationships with people. Some of them you would say are closer than others. How close was the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? Because if we, could, if we could possibly grasp that a little bit, then we could look at this and understand <clears throat> how expensive was this gift for God to give his only begotten son and to put Jesus through hell to pay for our sin. A lot of people in the world talk about uh, hell on earth or boy, I've been through hell, I've been to hell and back, you know, all those kinds of things. Nobody has a clue what that means. One of the biblical definitions of hell is separation from God. Isn't that what happened right here? There is a separation between God the Father and God the Son while God poured out the punishment for our sin on him. Think for a moment about your closest loved one, whoever you'd say that is. Your closest friend. How hard would it be for you to put your closest loved one through hell for someone else? Who in your life would you sacrifice to save another person? Would you sacrifice the closest person you have? I I dare say many of us would say, well, that's a tough question. God the Father sent his only begotten and allowed him to go through hell for us. He was the only begotten Son of God. Putting him through that helps us to understand what it means to be the Lamb of God. From uh, John 1, the next day John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God sent his Son to be the Lamb that would pay for our sin. 
In fact, Revelation 13, 8 speaks of Christ being the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? What it means is that since God knows everything and God exists outside of time, Christ surely knew of everything that lay ahead of him as our sin bearer when he came to earth. If we were to back up and say, I wonder what it was like when Christ was creating the first lambs. You know, Colossians 1.17 says, By him all things were created. So he was the actual agent of creation. God had a plan. Christ carried it out. He creates the first lambs. Do you suppose he paused and looked at those and said, They're a picture of me. And someday I am going to go through what thousands, perhaps millions of lambs went through in that Old Testament time when they were sacrificed and the smoke of all those offerings wafted up to heaven. Do you suppose Jesus thought about the smoke of those, wa- those offerings wafting up to heaven and, and thinking about the payment he would make and the satisfaction that, that God would have that the sin was paid for? Even though I'm sure he thought about it ahead of time, this was what he experienced on the night before. He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And and medically, yes, that is possible to be under such stress and to feel such pressure that that blood actually comes out of the pores of the skin. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, created the lambs, saw how they were used, saw his future way before he ever came to earth, but he still came to earth. He still struggled to go through all of this pain, but why did he do it? Because of the joy that was set before him. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. What was the joy set before him? The joy set before him was your salvation and my salvation. He looked at the cross and said, that's a terrible thing. I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. I don't want to have that darkness when when I am separated from the Father and when he pours out all of the punishment for sin on me. I don't want that, but I will gladly go through that because these people will not be saved any other way. And because he paid for our sin, that brings us to his most common name, which is Jesus. And the name Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. She will bring forth the son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. One of the things that we don't grasp in our English translations, of course, is the fact that names most often are actually phrases or compound words that actually have a meaning. And in the, in the time of the scriptures, people were given names based on uh, things that were attached to their life. The name Jesus is based on the Old Testament name Joshua, which means Jehovah saves. 
Jehovah is the primary name of God, the Father, in the Old Testament era. And so the life and ministry of Jesus are the result of God's desire to save mankind. I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. God desires all men to be saved. Not all men will be saved. Not all men will, will seek God. Not all men will be sought by God. But it is God's desire, and that's why he sent a Savior. He sent his Son who was the divine and perfect, and he took on a human nature and was able to grow up in sinless perfection and give himself as a sacrifice for sin. We can be saved because of the work of Christ. Christ went to the cross and came off of the cross with our salvation in hand. That's a picture of a house fire that happened a few days ago on Fox Island down by Tacoma. The husband and father who lived there was an emergency room doctor and a reserve police officer, not somebody who was, who was uh, unaware of emergency practices. He feared that his daughter was trapped inside, so he went in after her, and they both perished in the fire. The man loved his daughter, and he gave his best effort to save her. But his best effort was not enough. It's possible that there's not anyone's best effort who could have saved her. There is no human being who could have saved us, even though a best effort was given. You can't save yourself even though you give your best effort. Many people believe that the path to a better life is to do a lot of good, and somehow if there is a God, he will look at life and say, well, you've done your best. You've given it a good effort. There's a fundamental problem with that. We are not able to do anything good for God because we are tainted with sin to begin with. Whereas Jesus, the eternal Son of God who took on a human life, was sinlessly perfect when he came and he lived a sinless life. And so the payment that he offered was absolutely able to satisfy God's requirement that our sin be paid for. God took on human flesh and offered the perfect sacrifice. He saved us because he was chosen by the Father to do so. That's what the other part of the name that we most use when we talk about Jesus Christ, that's what this name means. It means to be chosen or to be the, uh, the anointed is the literal meaning of the word. From John 4, then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and know that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. These people who were around the woman at the well from John chapter 4 knew the scripture enough to know that there was a man who was promised to come. 
And he was called the anointed one. The word Christ or Christos in Greek literally means anointed. It corresponds to the Old Testament word Messiah. And it comes from the Old Testament practice of pouring oil on the head of a specially chosen person. Now, I don't know where the pouring of oil came from. I don't know if anybody does, but, but it was a special privilege. Here, you've been chosen, in particular in the Old Testament, you've been chosen to be the king. And they would pour some oil on his head. They would anoint him. The anointing was the outward symbol that God had already anointed or chosen him and so he was the chosen king of Israel. Jesus is called the chosen savior of Israel, the chosen savior of all who will believe in him. In John chapter one, Andrew first found his own brother Simon or Peter and said to him, we have found the Christ or the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, the one who is to be our savior. Only Jesus could save us from our sin because only he was chosen by God. Only a divine person could be sinful. Only a human being could shed blood. Only Jesus could be the Savior. Do you realize that there are many men in recent days, in in recent uh, dozens or centuries of years, who have claimed to be the real Christ? I came across an article in, my, in, uh, in a file that I keep on Christmas. I got a bunch of articles on different topics, and I was kind of scanning through there this week, and I found this article that named person after person after person who literally claimed to be the Christ. And I, I was kind of shocked. I just didn't realize that many people actually claimed to be him. And now a couple of them that I'm familiar with in, in recent times uh, the most recent one to claim that and then die is Sun Young Moon. You know, the Moonies or the Unification Church is the proper name. And he had a whole doctrine of how he believed Christ failed. And it had to do with starting the perfect race. And, uh, you know, Jesus was supposed to get married and start the perfect race and so on. And he, and he was killed before he could do that. And so Sun Young Moon is going to finish that up. And so that's why marriage was a big deal to them and having children was a big deal. And of course, he himself was married and had children. He is dead and gone and apparently not the savior of the world. There was a a fellow that the Orthodox Jews looked to who died a few years before that. His name was Menachem Schneerson, Menachem, get it right here. I didn't write it all down. Menachem Schneerson, I think Bagan. I'm not sure if I have that right. But he was a rabbi in Brooklyn. And of course, the article that I read, uh, written by a Jewish Christian who said, whoever said the Messiah would be born in New York, you know? I mean, this guy literally never set foot in Israel. But he, was, he, he did not personally claim to be the Messiah, but all of his followers said he was going to be the Messiah. And he didn't say no. And they actually had pagers. This is in the days before cell phones. They had pagers so that at the moment when he ascended to be the Messiah, they would all be paged and they would all know that it was going to happen. His grave is in New York City as well. No human being could ever pay for sin, no matter what he claims. Only Jesus was the Christ, the one on whom God laid our sin the one whom God intended to lay our sin on. And because of that sacrifice, 
He deserves this name. This is the final one we're going to look at. Of course, there are dozens and dozens of names attributed to Christ in the, in the Scripture, but we're only going to look at one more. And it's the Son of the Highest. Turn with me to Psalm 2. <clears throat> the second Psalm, please. And the place where he is called the Son of the Highest here is in, in Luke chapter 1, in one of the places. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. Isn't it interesting that, that God doesn't have any problem saying all of these different names? He will be called this. He will be called this. If we were to do that, we'd say, listen, bud, you've got to make up your mind here. But God just keeps adding these names to, to help us understand who he is. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. The throne and the rule is connected to being called the son of the highest. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, or Israel, forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That is from the conversation that the angel had with Mary when Christ was promised to her when, when uh, she was foretold about uh, the virgin birth and so on. And if we would fast forward a little bit, there, here is the prediction that he will be called the son of the highest and he will have a kingdom that will have no end. If we fast forward to this scripture written a, a few years after his death, burial and resurrection, and the apostle Paul says, and talking of Christ, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those in earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now it's interesting that when it says he's given him every, a name above every name, he doesn't exactly say what that name is, but it would appear that the name is Jesus Christ the Lord, which will be confessed by every tongue. Now the word Lord right here is, uh, is really a word that means master. Uh, when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we are saying he is the master, he is the king. We are agreeing with God that he is the son of the highest and the king of the world, if you will. And when we call him Lord, we are saying you are the master and I am your servant. How do you relate to an absolute monarch. I believe Psalm 2 tells us about this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now I'm sure David was writing this about himself in the sense that he knew he was God's king and he looked out and he said, you know what, folks? I'm aligned with God. It is futile for you to oppose this. It wasn't arrogant on his part because he really believed he was God's chosen man, and he was God's chosen man. But by prophecy, he also wrote it about Christ. 
Why do the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds or their, their binding cords in pieces. Let us cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now be wise. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. Now when we see the word kiss, we're thinking of something romantic between two people. What he's talking about here is a person paying, uh, uh, paying homage, paying uh, respect and fear to another person by the way that they interact with them. If Jesus Christ is the king and the Lord of the universe, and God says he is, then you can fight him, but you will not win. Part of the message of Christmas is God says, this is the, this is the son of the highest, and I've given him the throne of his father David, which is to rule the world. And so, in uh, Philippians Chapter 2 tells us that every knee, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. But it doesn't tell us that every person will do that in faith and enter heaven and God's blessing. Some people will bow before Christ in judgment. Those who bow in worship and respect now will have nothing to fear later. When we think about the baby who came, he wasn't just a baby in a manger. He grew up to be our Savior and now the King. And we need to make sure that we are believing in him and obeying him and, and following him because that's who he is. We have a nativity set uh, out here as part of our Christmas decorations and uh, much thanks to uh, the Ericsons for their faithful work to make sure our church looks uh, good each year. But two or three years ago, about, I think about three years ago, the baby in the, in the manger was stolen. And, you know, it, it was there and then it was gone. And uh, so he said, well, there you go. Within the next year, oh, I don't know, nine or ten months later sometime before Christmas, Somebody brought that same baby back and put it on the doorstep of the church. So it was put out in the nativity last year and it was stolen again. That's a pretty good metaphor for what's happened to Jesus in our society when it comes to Christmas. We have all of this stuff, much of which is lovely, as the direct decorations we have here. We have all of this celebration but where's the baby in the manger he's gone or if he's there 
he is just a baby in a manger. He is not the Word of God communicating to us. He is not Emmanuel, God with us. He is not the only begotten, preciously given to become the Lamb of God and our Savior. He's not the Christ, the the one who is destined to become the Son of the Highest, to become the King of the world. This baby, the one that I've been talking about this morning, he loves you. And he wants you to know him and for him to have his rightful place in your life. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, you know each of our hearts here this morning. You know those folks who have already bowed before Jesus Christ and said, I want you to be my Savior. And you know those folks who still need to believe in Christ. May you make your truth plain and clear to them and may you help them to believe today. Father, for those of us who have believed, may we know Christ as he truly is and may he truly be the Lord of our lives as well as our Savior. I pray in his name, amen.